Welcome to Curious Salma. My guest today is Yang Long. Yang is a graduate student from Singapore. He studies international relations and is currently doing an internship in Dubai. This is not Yang's first visit to the Middle East. He had an internship at the Singapore Embassy in Cairo in 2018. He also studied Arabic at the Arabic Language Institute in Fas in Morocco last year. Yank is passionate about traveling, theater, soccer, and collecting blue and white pottery. You're listening to Curious Salma by Salma Hageb. I really appreciate all your comments and feedback on the podcast social media platforms. Hi, Yang. Hi, Salma. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you being here because all of our discussions in the past have been very interesting and you bring a unique perspective having been from Singapore and visited the Middle East and have a special interest in the Middle East, whether in terms of politics or history or lots of different things. So I think this would be very interesting. Looking forward to it. So first of all, let me uh, ask you, what made you interested in the Middle East? Well, my interest in the Middle East was a bit more organic. I started off learning some Arabic in school. And, you know, over the years, learning Arabic unlocked a lot of new experiences for me. And with each of these new experiences, I started to appreciate a lot more about the region, its culture, um, the religion, Islam, and um, many other aspects of of the region as well, the history, the art of the region, so on and so forth. So I I, I would say I, I haven't been someone who started off this journey really interested in the Middle East. In fact, from where I come from in Singapore, I think there isn't a lot of awareness of what the Middle East is apart from some of the more negative headlines covering it. And and I think I, I'm also similar when I started off, but you know, as I learned more and more and, and actually visited the Middle East, I fell in love with a lot of the people here and the culture here and it's something that I, I think has become a, a very important part of my life. What was the m- most surprising thing you have found out when you started visiting the Middle East? Like something you didn't expect? Well, I mean, from a very basic point of view, uh, unlike many of the media headlines and the fears of my parents and friends, you know, it's not just war-torn places the moment you step out the, of the airport. I mean, I'm exaggerating. Um, but but definitely, I feel safer in many parts of the Middle East that I've been than many places in Europe or America that I have stayed at. So that's that's definitely, I guess, a, a surprise on, on, on some levels. But also, the other thing about hospitality, I think I have not been to anywhere else in the world that can rival Middle Eastern hospitality. Now, of course, when I say the Middle East, that's that's big, right? Egyptian hospitality versus Moroccan hospitality, it, it's, it's still different. But I, I think on the whole, you know, if I were to get lost on the streets of Cairo for a night, um, I can guarantee you that someone will take me in, someone will take care of me, will tell me about Egypt, will bring me to, uh, you know, one of the best restaurants, even pay for my food, even, um, you know, give me the best possible dinner that that might be worth three or four dinners in their family. I, I don't think I've seen hospitality of this level in other parts of the world. I think that, that has been very surprising and, and I felt very welcomed in the region. I can attest to that, of course, about Cairo, but also you're, you're absolutely right. There is a 
split differences in the Middle East. So, for instance, when I go to uh, Saudi Arabia and my colleagues for on a business trip or something, my colleagues would take care of me. They would uh, want to pay, pay for my food and they would, you know, um, insist on it in every possible way. I would experience a different level of uh, hospitality a little bit, but still familiar because that's what we do also to our guests in Cairo and Egypt, you know. So you're absolutely right. How many other places have you been to since you mentioned the U.S. and, and Europe? Um, so my, my undergraduate uh, experience was really spread around many parts of the world. And in, in the Middle East, I think you talked about it, I've been to Morocco, Egypt, and I've also been to the Gulf. I mean, I'm doing an internship in Dubai right now, but I have also been on a study trip to um, Kuwait and Oman. So that's that's the Middle East. I spent a semester studying in the U.S. in the uh, West Coast in California, and an entire year of my master's also studying on the, the other coast, the East Coast in Washington, D.C. So U.S. was part of it. I've also spent a summer in in France where I studied in Sciences Po in Paris. I've spent um, a semester in China, in Shanghai, and also two different winter summer breaks in the cities of Suzhou and uh, Hangzhou. So that's China, that's US, that's the Middle East. And, and I've also been on like study trip programs in Southeast Asia. Uh, been to Vietnam, and funnily enough, even though I'm from Singapore, I've also been on a study trip to Singapore. So I mean, I I I I've been to really many different parts of the world, I would say, and it's it's been a very enlightening experience for me over these six years of my studies. And what do you aim to do when you finish studying? Well, I hope to be a diplomat, but uh, we will see about that. I think I'm more interested generally in a more international. Uh, relations or even just international affairs kind of career or space. Uh, I, I think right now, you know, if you follow global politics or current affairs, you will see that the world is undergoing a lot of very uh, basic shifts and also challenges, climate change, US-China competition. I mean, I could go on and I think it's a space that is 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 so important to be in and I think I want to be part of that. Yani, if we recap the past five years, and sometimes I, I, I go back and I think about my parents and the, pre, the even the previous generation, and because they always would say, oh, we've had it hard, you guys are spoiled, you have the internet, you have technology. Do you think they had like to face global pandemic, uh, the, the fear of recession coming, war happening now and affecting everything? And as you said, like economic, political, you know, complications in many different regions. I, I'm like, sometimes I think, did they really have to face all of that at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to make this a competition about, you know, which generation ha- has it harder. Every generation will tell you that they had it hard and, you know, some, their, their children have it easier. And in fact, I think that's the hope of every parent. But what, what I would say is, you know, I was born right after the Cold War ended in the ni- early ni- 90s, right? And that's, if you have to look at how the, the, the history of the world played out in the last 100 over years, I, I would say the 90s until, you know, maybe 2010 was really two decades of at least relative peace. There, there, there wasn't, I'm graduating in 2020 for myself in a pandemic and then now you have the Ukraine-Russia war 
and you know you have this whole bigger competition going on between the US and China is definitely very different from that 20 years that I mentioned I feel like the world that I grew up in and the world that I'm entering into now as a full-fledged adult is so different um, you know when I graduated during the pandemic, I had to make so many different plans of my life, not just professional plans, even, you know, financial uh, planning and, and um, you know, even with my family, not being able to meet everyone because of the restrictions, uh, my, my own aspirations for my future. A lot of things changed very fundamentally for me. And you can imagine that if that's the case for an individual, how much more on a more uh, national and, and global scale, so many organizations and peoples have had to adjust their plans so yeah i mean we we are having it hard quite hard especially compared to kind of the 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 20 or so years i referred to where where you know i grew up in feeling quite certain about my life but that's also a function of where i came from in in, in singapore i would say you're absolutely right and that every generation has faced their own challenges and also the fact that you said you graduated during the pandemic i cannot even imagine that because for me, I was uh, uh, someone who's like already established in their work and, you know, um, but I also had to face a lot of challenges of my own and I had to face living on my own for the first time and accept being an adult, stop running away from, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a responsible person who has bills. Like it's, it's, it's a whole thing in your, in my perception of myself, I had to accept, okay, I'm, I'm now entering my 30s graduating in such difficult circumstances where you don't know what's happening the job market is was at its lowest right layoffs everywhere and um, it, it's kind of familiar now as well with all the tech layoffs but I mean it must have been a unique experience that you would be able to tell your children in the future I graduated during a time when the pandemic was happening and, you know, there were no job search in the horizon or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I, I want to go through that again, you know, to be able to tell my, my children or have so-called bragging rights. It, it, was, it was a very painful period for myself and I think for many people around me where you, you know, enter university and invest a lot in your school and expect or hope that you would be able to find a job that you like after you graduate and to enter a job market completely devastated by the pandemic it's 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 hard to accept and i i mean for for me it was a difficult period because back then i was still doing my my own thesis paper doing research field work and my field work process got you know abruptly stopped so i didn't know how to complete it and and then there was the issue of you know i was hoping to do my master's program right after that but now i couldn't because i didn't want to do it virtually virtual classes are just not my my thing and subsequently it then became a, a point of okay i need to find something to do in this one year and then you look at the job market you realize no one's hiring uh i'm, I'm thankful i was uh, in singapore back then and the government i think was push, pushing out this traineeship scheme which was not you know full-time jobs but they would provide heavy subsidies for traineeship uh, roles across different industries and and that was an option for for me as well so I, I think at the end of the day the pandemic gave a lot of um, precarity the the feeling that that you you don't know what you should do and what you can do kind of being almost helpless because a lot of things are out of your control 
trying to figure a way through that without with limited information, limited opportunities out there. I think it's not something that, that a lot of people really liked going through. I, I didn't like it. Uh, but, but you know, on, on hindsight, I think it taught me a lot of lessons. I don't want to over-glorify it <laughs> and say that, you know, now I'm going to be able to tell my grandchildren I graduated in a pandemic. But it definitely made me a lot more resilient and, and a lot more aware of how to respond when a lot of things are out of your control. You're absolutely right. It, it kind of put us all in a, in a state of discomfort. And that state of discomfort helped us do things that are usually out of our... Um, we wouldn't do them on the first uh, thought, you know. Uh, it, it, it challenged everyone to try and get out of their comfort zone and do something that is unfamiliar to them. Also, if you look at uh, societies or communities that are usually used to do things like their parents and their cousins and their friends, you know, like just take the uh, traditional route and then suddenly the traditional route is not working anymore. So that put everyone uh, on their own uh, journey of exploration, like they had to do something different uh, to cope. So yes, it, it taught us a lot of resilience, but also I feel it freed a lot of people from the general expectations of what you should do at this point and just made you, okay, go on your own thing, try to survive it. <laughs> so it, it uh, taught us resilience and also allowed some of the people to take an untraditional route. Yeah, it felt like the expectations were honestly so low for everyone, you know. Like, <laughs> find something, really, that, that's it. Just find something. Uh, or, or even if you stay at home, I think there was a lot of people saying, you know, find a new hobby, you know, find something to do. In, in a way, that could be also be stressful, I would say, you know. Why can't you just sit at home and do absolutely nothing? But, because but I of guess capitalism. The, the, yeah, maybe, but also the, the fact you... you probably cannot leave your home at that point in time added to the whole frustration of, of the moment. The whole notion of productivity and you have to do something with your time. This also was uh, being challenged, at, at least for me. Uh, I spent months uh, of burnout during the pandemic because I used all of my energy in the beginning uh, to be as productive as possible, right? And to like do a lot of things and check up on everyone and work and do. And then I spent lots of months just suffering burnout not being able to do anything. And in order to get away from this, I had to tell myself just the same thing you said right now. It's okay to do nothing. It's okay to just like take care of yourself and be in your space and feel all of these feelings for this day and that day and that day. And I took it from there, right? So uh, the notion even of productivity and uh, how you define your own self-worth and success and all of that was also challenged during the pandemic. And I think it continues to be challenged till now. Now, we choose to talk today about a certain topic because I asked you what is something you're passionate about because I know that you are someone who likes public speaking if they have something in mind. And you told me that you're always interested about the links between China, Southeast Asia and the Middle East and uh, the historical aspect of it and the current and all of that. So I want you to tell us a little bit about that and uh, take us on this journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my interest in all three regions were quite uh, separated at the start you know I, I didn't go into this entire thing liking or, or being very interested in the, the links between the three regions and and for me it, it really started of course growing up in Singapore 
and then being exposed to the region, traveling through tourism, uh, you know, meeting people from the neighboring countries, Malaysia, Indonesia. But, you know, I, I think even then, I wouldn't say that as a Singaporean, I understood my region very well. And, and even in school, I would learn about my region, but it also took very specific perspectives that, that was being taught to us um, about the region. And, you know, that, that did not always give you a full view of Southeast Asia. So I think entering university, I had a series of uh, different experiences where I got to travel to Southeast Asia and then also got to travel to China and then the Middle East and also learn some of the languages associated with these areas, you know, meet some of the people. And increasingly, I started to really get a, a, a deeper interest in each of these regions. You know, I, I, I started taking classes in Chinese, um, by, taught by Chinese professors, understanding Chinese society, Chinese history. We spoke about this. I, I, I learned Arabic and picked up a bit of Persian as well. So the Middle East became a place that I also took an interest in. You know, recently I've also picked up some Malay and, and also done uh, study trips to Southeast Asia. And, and so I think there was starting to be a, a deeper uh, immersion into each of these three regions. And then subsequently, there were pivotal moments where I started to draw links between uh, each of these three regions and realize that, okay, in, in world history and in, even in modern um, geopolitics and economics, these three regions are bound together in a way that that is um, that goes very deep, I would say. So, I mean, one such moment was when I was in UC Berkeley doing an exchange program, and I took a class on Islamic art taught by a Berkeley professor, a Berkeley professor, uh, Professor Anaka Lanson, and it was such a mind-blowing class. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much about Islamic art. But I would say one moment in the class or a couple of readings in the class that stood out for me was this um, this whole artistic genre of blue and white pottery. I mean, growing up, I, I thought blue and white pottery was, was from China, right? I think most of us would, would think that. But it, you know, in, in this class, I realized that blue and white pottery actually goes back a, a long way um, into the the uh, 700s or 800s, I think, during the Umayyad um, dynasty. And I, I think at that point in time, it, a lot of the production of blue and whites was concentrated in Basra, Iraq. And then I realized that subsequently during the, the Yuan dynasty in China, which is paralleled by the end of the Abbasid dynasty, and, and back then it was the, the Mongol um, Empire, I think that, that was when blue and whites really started being uh, exported from uh, the Middle East to China and, and, and back and forth. And um, a lot of it was also, I mean, going into too much detail here really, but, but a lot of it was also enabled by, I think, some of the, the pottery materials from uh, Persia back then uh, that was essential in making the blue and whites that we know of today. And, and, and that blue and white pottery is it's not just shipped you know, from China to, to the Middle East directly, if you imagine the world map and the trade routes, it goes through Southeast Asia, right? It goes through the Straits of Malacca before it reaches Oman and, and eventually uh, in, inland, more inland in the, in the Middle East. And that trade route is part of what um, 
many would know as the maritime silk road it has a maritime and a land component and 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 that that silk road really defy a lot of how trade was conducted for hundreds of years and you know I, I could go on about this but you know that was one of those pivotal moments where i realized a simple blue and white pottery represents the linkages of three regions in the history of not just history but even present day uh, world trade and and uh, the movement of not just art but movement of people culture ideas across place and time and and to me that's just so fascinating three regions that i'm i'm so interested in actually having such a tangible and deep connection uh, over thousands of years and you also mentioned how in the middle east we are not really aware of how much we are connected with china and southeast asia even to the present day uh, and that uh, that intrigues you yeah yeah i mean uh i i think as with many places in the world you know we live within our own countries and communities i don't think you know unless you have traveled extensively or or learned a foreign language you would be as aware of some of these linkages but um it it is very prominent i think if you if you start to 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 look around you look at the people around you you know you know wonder about where they come from look at the objects around you wonder where they come from i mean blue and white is very commonly used in singapore but it doesn't even need to be about pottery right uh you could also in in the case of singapore there are metro stations we call them mrt stations that are named for example Aljunied uh, we call it Aljunied but the name Aljunied actually comes from uh, the arabic word Aljunaid which is a, uh, a a very famous and and politically prominent family the Aljunied family and they actually come from the uh, south of yemen uh, where the hadramauts lived and moved to singapore many many years ago so you know even taking a metro station walking to a metro station in singapore and and realizing that the name is very much connected to yemen you know is such a testament to at least where i come from in singapore being a, a very diverse place and the next mrt station could be a chinese name and even then you know the chinese were never native to to singapore and and that in itself is is a, a larger story about migration uh, of of the chinese people to singapore about 100 or 200 years ago Uh, I'm talking just about the context of Singapore right but even to the Middle East um and China itself you have the movement of Arabs and Persian traders uh to the southeast of China and Chinese scholars moving to the Middle East to learn about uh Islam and and other aspects of um uh, governance I I think that those exchanges have gone on for a very long time and you know they they are very rich although i would say you know the ordinary person might not always be as aware of how these connections have actually informed um the development of these regions for for quite a long time i know we could talk about this a lot a lot Can. more uh and especially that you shared with me like a million link on uh, on uh, and readings on the middle east and and china and uh, art and poetry so as i said uh, i think you're pottery as well so i think you're very interested in this but now it got it 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 got me to think about how little i know about singapore to be honest 
it never came to my um, mind before as more than a bit of a stereotype. So I thought of playing this game with you where we kind of uh, ask each other about stereotypes and whether they are true or not. Sure. So for in- for instance, how true is the movie uh, Crazy Rich Asians? How true is it? <laughs> Um, when it comes to stereotypes <laughs> about how Singaporeans are, like, you know, filthy rich. Yeah, I, I would say most Singaporeans would tell you that it's not true at all. Not true at all. You know, most Singaporeans live in public flats. We don't throw lavish parties and we speak Singlish, uh, not, not a more, uh, you know, formal or internationalized form of English. And I think most people, you know, live on much cheaper food provided for at our hawker centers, which are these like food courts in Singapore. And, you know, very different, very different from what Crazy Rich Asians depicted. And even then, the the characters in Crazy Rich Asians, when they ate at those hawker centers, they actually went to the more expensive ones, you know, and and as we call them, more atas in, in, in Singlish, you know, more high class hawker centers. And that's not what I think most Singaporeans would tell you Singapore is like. But, you know, like you mentioned, it's one of the rare instances that Singapore got featured in Hollywood so prominently. Entire movie made in, in, in Singapore's context. And I think we obviously feel very tickled and curious by it and have gotten a lot of questions since from foreigners. To go back into our comparison about stereotypes, I think you already know more you know more than when you first came and visited the middle east so what was one thing that you had as a stereotype and then changed for you uh as you said other than safety and uh, hospitality what else that you had as a stereotype i thought all middle eastern people maybe look the same way in their dress sense like um you know the abayas that they wear or the the what do you call that the the, the one the men wear, the white ones. Gotra or Agal or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always thought that because I think in, in Singapore when you see Middle Eastern people, many of them come from the Gulf. <laughs> and, and so I think there's an impression that, you know, Middle Eastern men and women look a particular way. And obviously in the me- media, a lot of the time when they focus on things like uh, women's rights and they show the picture alongside it, it's always like a woman in, in a completely black... Um, a buyer and niqab and uh, it's 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 the image I, I guess that you have predominantly on your mind when you think of the region but then when you go there you realize oh actually it's so diverse the dress uh, code is so diverse um, a lot of the abayas have so many different designs and then you see that people from different parts of the Middle East wear something different depends on the occasion as well that you're wearing something to and and that that was just um really really uh eye opening for me as well i mean i i'm i'm no expert in, in in middle eastern fashion you know don't get me wrong but just that 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 was really opened my mind i'll tell you one thing i was surprised with when i uh, when i left egypt and came here was how fancy the abayas could get and how expensive and the level i've never seen this before because for us as you, uh, you you're absolutely right like abayas has a different form and um occasions to wear in, in Egypt and then when I came here and saw the the very very fancy and expensive abayas and the designs and the shoes and all I was so surprised by it in the beginning again I'm very 
I think I'm curious to know about Singapore because I don't know much, but if you want listeners to this episode come up with one thing about Singapore, what would you want them to know? It would be how diverse Singapore is. You know, it's very hard to speak of just a singular Singapore culture without realizing all the different components of it. You have, you know, Chinese people, Indian people, Malay people, uh, Eurasian people, and a lot of the different cultural influences from each of these ethnic groups, you know, feeds into our national culture. When people ask me, what is Singapore food? I struggle to answer because there is so many possibilities when it comes to Singapore food, right? I could tell you about uh, laksa, which is really a, a Peranakan dish. Peranakan, which is a, a mix of uh, Malay and Chinese ancestry. And then there is also like purely Chinese dishes like Hainanese chicken rice. And then there's also Malay food, uh, you know, like um, mee rebus, uh, you know. And, and, and th- th- there is also Indian food as well, like roti prata, so on and so forth. And, and each of these uh, very important national dishes I think they form a, a very diverse palette of the Singaporean where I think we are spoiled. We are spoiled. And, and every time we go overseas and, you know, realize that, okay, there isn't so much Singapore food. When we think of home, we think of food first. So I would say, you know, diversity really is, is the key word. And then amazing food culture. What's your favorite Singaporean food from your That's culture? <laughs> impossible <laughs> question. It really is. It depends on what I feel on that day. Um, yeah, I mean, I like chicken rice. I like, um, you know, uh, mee siam. I like, uh, I mean, I really could go on. It really depends on what I feel in that day. You know, I love Asian food and I love different types of stuff, even if I don't know their name, but I will go on and I say, yeah, I want that, I want that. But uh, again, coming back to your roots and all, I rem- I now remind remembered that every time I'm sick, I immediately think of Egyptian food and a specific type of soup. Uh, it's called lisan uh, asfur. I'm not sure if you know it or not. It's personally that is like uh, it's some type of uh, pasta, but it's very small and uh, it's with chicken broth or meat broth. And you know, immediately when I feel a cold, when I'm coughing, whatever, I just think I need Egyptian food, and I need like some molokhia and some uh listen us for and i think that's an interesting way of like you know how you go back to your roots no matter where you traveled when you feel sick or when you feel homesick if if you want people to read more or know more about uh, the links between china southeast asia and the middle east what's one book or you know resource that you think it would be useful for us to to know uh i would recommend that you can read up about the exhibition of a Tang Dynasty shipwreck at the Singapore a- uh, Asian Civilizations Museum. And this was a shipwreck that was, and of course it used to be a ship that was going to go from southeast of China towards, uh, I think, the, oh, if I'm not wrong, it was going to Oman. And the ship itself contained like thousands of goods and art pieces that was to be transported over and unfortunately it never found its way to the Middle East. It was uh I think it, it sunk in near between Singapore and Indonesia and the Asian Civilizations Museum acquired it. It's the oldest uh archaeological proof 
of maritime links between Singapore, uh, the Middle East, and uh, China. And I mean, not just Singapore, I mean, rather Southeast Asia as well, of that entire maritime uh, Silk Road. And I, I think if you want to learn more about this relationship in a very tangible way, this exhibition would be the best place to start. Uh, I mean, if you're in Singapore, you should visit this exhibition. If you're not in Singapore, you can read about the exhibition online as well. Thank you very much, Yang. I think that's uh, very useful. And I will add a, a link in the notes about it. Where can listeners find you online? You can uh, add me on LinkedIn or I can also give you my email. I want to thank you so much for joining me today and the interesting discussions. And I feel it's just the start or the tipping point for me to find more about Singapore. Uh, thanks a lot, Yang, again, for your time with me.